Before we start today, we would like to take the time to dedicate today's episode and our very first episode of Research Recasted to our guest Cheyenne and her cookum. After recording today's podcast, we were extremely heartbroken to hear of Cheyenne's cookum's passing. We are honored to dedicate this episode to Cheyenne and her cookum. We would like to invite Cynthia Pudu and Cheyenne Gray Eyes to offer a land acknowledgement. I want to acknowledge that um, the land that we're gathering on today is Treaty 6 territory, the traditional gathering place for many Indigenous people. And we honor and respect the history, languages, and ceremonies and cultures of the First Nations, Métis, and Inuit who call this territory home. And as part of my uh, acknowledgement of being on Treaty 6 land, I also want to um, acknowledge that I am trying to take action towards reconciliation by working with uh, Indigenous um, communities that find themselves on Treaty 6 and Indigenous young people and working with them to uh, bring them back to the land and helping uh, them rediscover ceremony through the elders that they're working with. So that's my action for today. Uh, thank you, Cynthia. Um, part of the action that I want to speak to today as well is um, the idea of land back in terms of our land acknowledgement. Um, land back in the way that I understand it is returning sovereignty to Indigenous peoples. And that can look like a lot of different ways. It can mean literally returning personal property to Indigenous peoples who have been stewards of this land for millennia. And it can also mean that allowing Indigenous people space on this land without interruption and without control. So land back to me is one of the things that I want to recognize with uh, this land acknowledgement. Hi, hi. Cynthia, Cheyenne, thank you so much for that. Hello, my name is Brittany Eklund and welcome to the very first episode of Research Recasted, a knowledge mobilization podcast where my co-host Dylan Cave and I get to sit down with researchers from all different disciplines and backgrounds and basically get paid to learn. Over the next eight months, Brittany and I will be releasing bi-weekly episodes where we sit down with some of the many researchers here at McCune University to talk about where they got started and where they are now. We'll be talking a ton of different topics, so no matter what you're interested in, it's guaranteed that we'll have something for you. The great thing about this podcast is that you don't have to be an academic to understand or enjoy it. Dylan and I are not researchers, so we're able to approach things from a place of often very little understanding. But in asking those simple questions, we're able to help break down any complex academic concepts in a way that allows everyone to be able to interact with the people and the projects that are working all around us. Joining us today for our first episode is Dr. Cynthia Pudu, an assistant professor in the Faculty of Health and Community Studies at McEwen University. In her research, she works closely with unhoused youth in Edmonton to understand how socio-political systems and policies impact their experiences. Joining her is Cheyenne Grayeyes. Originally from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation, Cheyenne is currently studying psychology, anthropology, sociology, all the ologies at McEwen University, where she also works as a research assistant and she's the president of the McEwen's Indigenous Students Club. Her and Cynthia are currently working together on an exciting new project taking place in Edmonton in conjunction with Niganon Housing Ventures.
We would just like to offer a warning that this podcast contains discussion of settler colonialism and Indian residential schools that could be distressing for some listeners. A national Indian residential school crisis line has been set up to provide support for former students and those affected. People can access emotional and crisis referral services by calling the 24-hour national crisis line at 1-866-925-4419 and we will link to that in the episode description as well. Cynthia, Cheyenne, thank you so much for joining us for this very special first episode. Um, and thank you so much for leading us off with a land acknowledgement and kind of a reminder of the ways that we can take action and bring awareness to land back in conjunction with just offering kind of an acknowledgement that we're on Treaty 6. Uh, before we get started and talk about the research you guys have been doing, I think that we should mention um, this is a very extra, extra special first episode because Cynthia Pudu uh, is kind of the reason that we're here today. So Cynthia, what made you want to start a podcast? Um, this podcast. This <laughs> podcast. So uh, I was working in the research office and uh, chatting with a lot of different people about how do we get... Um, people to know what's happening in the research office, both uh, people outside of McEwen, because uh, especially uh, people in the city that have known McEwen for many years, many still refer to it as the community college. Um, and so I think there's a lack of understanding that there's some really great research happening. There's a lot of really great research happening. But also, uh, I believe that a lot of faculty know the research that they're doing and maybe they're close colleagues, but there isn't an awareness of the research for myself in health community studies. What are people in fine arts doing? What are people in uh, business doing? And so it was a way to, um, to find a different way to communicate the type of research that we're doing. Also being a, a community-based researcher where for me, the type of research I do hopefully um, is to work with community partners and to uh, work with community partners in, um, I don't want to say solving problems, but to, to, to look at issues that they might have and work together with them to assist them with that. Uh, I, I think it's important for us to get sometimes some really complex research that, and that's why we call it knowledge mobilization and knowledge mm -hmm. translation, translated in a way that uh make sense to people that aren't academics and aren't experts in that field. So, um, you know, a lot of times when, as academics, we write papers, we do peer-reviewed, we do conferences to our peers, right, to people that know what we're doing, and, and we often don't share that information with other academics in different fields, and definitely not with people that aren't in the academy. And so I thought um, a podcast, and I love podcasts, I listen to them yeah. all the time, I, <laughs> like, literally got... Um, waterproof headphones so I could listen to podcasts when I swim. No way. I didn't even know that existed. Like beyond like geeky, but whatever. Uh, so, cause people are like, Oh, you're listening to tunes when you swim. I'm like, no, it's actually a podcast. <laughs> um, so I think podcasts are great. And, and um, personally I've done some other podcasts to talk about my research and it has led to different community partners, different community agencies reaching out to me and saying, Hey, I, I heard you on this podcast and I'm interested in the work that you're doing. And if I had just, uh, you know, published in academic literature or in books, they might not have heard about the 
work that I'm doing. And, and uh, so I think in terms of getting people to know and hear about research, uh, podcasts are a fun way, a different way to do it. I mean, um, I think they're fantastic. Um, I come from a journalism background in case our listeners don't know, and they don't, it's our first episode. <laughs> um, but this particular medium and its ability to host like independent media sources and find alternate sources of information that may not be there out on the mainstream, um, I think is fantastic. So in that vein, I kind of like, as someone who is an academic, who has done the peer reviewed, had had, you know, you have done all this stuff. What's the benefit kind of to greater society? Like why have, knowledge mobilization like how does this research I mean like I know how it benefits everyone um and I'm a big believer also in equitable access to information but like from your perspective what's the benefit of having all of this out there and I so sadly it these days it always comes back to to COVID and the pandemic <laughs> I think is a perfect example of why getting good information, good information that's been vetted by academics, um, explained to people that aren't academics because uh, it is a great way for people to understand what, let's say, if it's science, right, vaccine science or whatever it is, or the work I do um, to bring awareness to how government policies perpetuate um, people being unhoused, how government policies perpetuate systemic racism. Uh, so, so I think it's just a, a good way to bring information to a lot of people and to a broader audience that might not have heard about um, that information or those connections. Uh, yeah, that that's because you know we're going to talk probably a lot about settler colonialism and all those kinds of things, and sometimes those connections aren't made. Um, you know, from, you know, settler colonialism and how it impacts vaccine access or something mm -hmm. like that, right? And there, those connections are there. And an academic can uh, make those connections in their, in their academic work and their research, but maybe someone in the general public would not have thought of going there, right? So, um, well, like, hopefully. yeah, in fact, there was a podcast the other day where, uh, of, you know, a physician made the connection between settler colonialism and the syphilis epidemic that we're having right now. Right. Because, um, so, so, and, and I remember the, the, the host was like, what? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> it's all connected. And so I think it's really important for, um, people that aren't in the field to hear those, like even academics that are not experts in that field might go, Oh, wow. I never thought about that. Right. So, uh, that's, that's it. I okay. Think. Well, <laughs> Thank you for that. Um, yeah, so now, I mean, this is a research podcast. So let's talk about some research. And first, we kind of want to get to know you guys. Um, I will open it up to just a little bit about um, how you became a community-engaged researcher. And Cheyenne, for you, um, you know, how you've, you're a student and you're a researcher, like, what inspires you guys to like get involved with research? And how did how did the how did the collaboration happen? Mm -hmm. Okay, so maybe I'll start because then it'll lead to the collaboration. Um, so my research journey started uh, as a community based research started um, ten or so years ago. So I've been at McEwen for really really long time, but uh, wasn't doing much research up until then. And uh, I started working with. 
a community partner with Boyle Street Community Services. I had students that were doing some service learning uh, there. And through that, I uh, started to get to know the staff at Boyle Street. And it was right when Rogers Place, the NHL arena, was about to be built. And so Boyle Street is across the street from Rogers. Uh, and, uh, and, and there's a lovely picture that I shared with you if you want to if people want to have a look at it at some point, on uh, the proximity of Rogers Place and, and Boyle Street. So there was a lot of concern about uh, Boyle Street Community Service, Services is um, an organization that uh, assists people that are living in poverty, people that are unhoused. Uh, a large proportion of their community members that they assist are Indigenous. Uh, many of them are survivors of residential schools. And so they were very concerned about what was going to happen with uh, the gentrification that was happening downtown. And, and I was interested in that story as well. And so I thought, well, let's, let's work together. And, and so, uh, and I, I was really interested in working with youth. I was working with their youth unit. And uh, that just started a journey into, initially it was an, trying to get an understanding of what, uh, the gentrification in the new arena, how it was going to affect the youth. And it really, as I, I spent more and more time there, I started to understand that um, that gentrification was a symptom of a much larger issue. I, I started to meet young people that were chronically unhoused, um, young people that um, many of them came from the foster care system. Uh, many of them, their mothers were unhoused, right? And so I just kept seeing this circle and almost had this incredibly helpless feeling of what's the point. Um, and so that started my journey into um, looking at those connections between those systemic issues uh, like neoliberalism, capitalism, uh, settler colonialism, and how they continually perpetuate uh, the issues that we see. And uh, so, so yeah, that kind of started my journey with, with working with community. And it was really about in order to understand and to, to get a good understanding of what's happening in communities, you have to be working with community really closely. So I literally, I, I was luckily on sabbatical, so I was at Boyle Street every single day in their youth unit, getting to know people, getting to know the young people, getting to know the staff. Um, and that was how I was able to connect with the community and to understand what their needs were. And and constantly having check-ins to make to make sure that what I was doing was actually a benefit to them. Because a lot of times researchers will go in, collect data, write a paper, and then the community never sees them again, right? And that, yeah. and, 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 you know, especially people um, that, are, that are homeless serving organizations, indigenous peoples, they're really sensitive to that. <laughs> like, it's really not the way you should be doing research. Um, you should get to know people, and it's about creating those relationships. So that then led me to because we're going to get to how I got to know Cheyenne. Yes. <laughs> um, one of the staff there, he was an Indigenous youth worker, again, because a, a lot of the, the young people that were there were Indigenous, and, and his role was to um, help the young people uh, to meet with elders, to reconnect with ceremony, because a lot of them had lost those connections. And he eventually moved on to a different organization, Niganon Housing Ventures, and he and I were chatting. Um, I had an opportunity to to come up with some or to apply for some money, and and so I was like, "Hey, do you have anything that you're working on?" And that's where this project that we're currently working on kind of started. It was a really long process. 
Um, took a couple years, several rejected grants, um, but then finally we were successful in getting uh, a grant that was funded by an organization called Making the Shift. And uh, yeah, we got a really big grant that allowed us to hire um, research assistants and a project coordinator. So this project is called, um, I mean, the technical term, I think the technical title is Decolonizing Transitions from Care. And what's happening with this project is Niganan Housing Ventures, which is a not-for-profit organization whose mandate is to um, assist Indigenous people um, living on Treaty 6 and surrounding area to become to stay housed, to bring them back to ceremony, to, to provide them with uh, their cultural supports that they need. And this specific project, um, there's a new housing uh, initiative called Omamu Wangogamek. Um, that means something, and I, I think it's all our relations. It means all our relations lodge. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and um, and so it's a multi generational housing initiative where there are elders that live on site, there are Kukums and Mushums that live on site. There's young families and these young people, and the idea there, is, and they're all indigenous. Uh, the idea there is to surround them uh, with indigenous culture with other indigenous people uh with the young people most of them lost their connection to their family to the land and when you talk about helping indigenous people uh, stay housed um housing when or homelessness when we talk about indigenous homelessness goes beyond just shelter we're talking about uh, a lack of connection to the land to culture and so the whole point of this is an indigenous-led organization um, is working on keeping people housed using indigenous ways. And so uh, one of the important things for us in hiring research assistants and project coordinators was that they be indigenous. Mm -hmm. And so I was lucky to be introduced to Shayan um, as a research assistant. And so she's been working with us for a year and a half now, almost, almost since the pandemic started. So I literally met Chan online, uh, and we had yeah. many, many meetings. And I think the first time I met her in person was a month ago. Oh yeah. <laughs> no way. Fairly yeah. recently. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so that's how Cheyenne became part of this project. So now I'll stop talking. Yeah. Cause I'd like to turn it <laughs> yeah. over to her. Um, cause I could talk for another five hours. But yeah. I won't. You're, you're a student, um, you're the president of the McEwen's Indigenous Students Club, and you're working as a research assistant. So like, that's busy. <laughs> it is, it is busy, yeah. Um, I just wanted to take one second. Yeah. Sorry, my cookum advised me something before I came here, and it and uh, is to introduce myself um, in my own language, which I would have done uh, over the land acknowledgement, but it's my first time on a podcast, just so listeners know. This is our first I'm, podcast, I'm so scared. we're all, yeah. we're all <laughs> new. We're all so new to this. Yeah, please, by all means. Hello, friends. My name is Eagle Woman. Uh, my name... Uh, given to me in English, Cheyenne Grey Eyes, as you heard me, introduced. Um, and like I said, I'm from Muskeg Lake Cree Nation. Uh, that's my home out on the prairies. Oh man, it's beautiful. <laughs> um, but yeah, um, I play a couple different roles, but in the end, I know nothing. Hey? Well, I mean, didn't, was that Socrates or, or one of those 
old timey Greek guys that was like, you know, to know nothing is actually to know. I mean, I don't know about Socrates, but I know my cookum said that. So, <laughs> well, then your cookum is a wise, wise woman. Yeah, but um, but yeah. yeah, no. Um, I know nothing. Um, every everything that comes out of my mouth is not my own ideas. It is not. Um, I do not hold any of the answers. Anything that comes out of my mouth is a result of sitting in ceremony and and learning from um, elders and people who have more knowledge than I do. So I just wanted to start before I speak that um, please, anyone listening, that whatever I say, if you hold different teachings, that whatever I say doesn't offend you and that um, I'm here with good intention and with a good heart. So with that, I'll move forward. And I thank you guys for giving us this space to uh, talk like this it's really productive thank you for giving I mean, us yeah thank the, you the so time. much like i know it's it, it can be even for for us like it's giving up emotional energy and all the 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 time we we greatly appreciate um all of our guests you included thank you so much so uh yeah i come from a long line of residential school survivors um, my entire family um definitely over a dozen cumulative cumulatively over a hundred years of my recent family line spent in residential schools. I could have easily been one of those youth that Cynthia is talking about. And I recognize that, that my proximity to these people that we hold a lot of trauma together. And while there's are sometimes different, sometimes we can come together and we can understand each other. So yeah, I play all these different roles and sure I may seem busy but it's all in the spirit of learning and reciprocity. And um, I'm very honored to be as busy as I am. I'm very privileged to have people that listen to my voice the way that they do. So um, I enjoy being a student and I enjoy being a faculty member and I enjoy working with Cynthia and I really, really, really enjoy this project that we're doing together. And um, there was a point where I was completely disconnected. That's what happens after your family experiences a lot of trauma, as my family did. I was not raised in ceremony. I was not raised in culture. This has been a process that I have had to build for myself. So I recognize the importance of how it changes your life, how it helps you heal from these traumas. And that's ultimately why I'm here. It's why I'm a student. It's why I'm the club president. It's why I'm a researcher, if you can even call me that. Mm. <laughs> but that us Indigenous people, we are healing each other in lots of different ways. And I have to learn from many different places. And learning from academia is, is one of them. But learning from my peers is even bigger than that. So I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, well, I was just curious on kind of like we heard kind of a little bit about Cynthia's journey as a researcher. Yeah. Um, and I think you did obviously touch on this in your answer. But yeah, I just really wanted to get to know like what attracted you to the fields that you're studying and yeah. what attracts you to working as a research assistant um, yeah. with Cynthia, but also for Kate Watson. And I think you did touch on it. If you want to elaborate a little bit more, because I mean, you're studying psychology, anthropology yeah. and sociology. Yes. And I have another question for you, both as sociologists <laughs> in a minute. I'm yeah. not a sociologist, but that's OK. Oh. 
But yeah, um, no, the psychology part of it is um, our mental health, right? I come from a community that has, well, many Indigenous peoples have different understandings of mental health, have different ways of managing it. Um, but we operate in this world together, yet we operate in different systems. We have different ways of trying to help each other and different ways of trying to heal each other. And I wanted to understand both ways. You have to understand both languages if you want to be able to translate. And that's a big part of it for our communities, is that there is not a lot of translators in, you know, in that sense of from academia to lived community work. So <clears throat> I started my journey in academia to do exactly that, is I wanted to understand, well, how are these spaces talking about mental health? Oh, okay, interesting. How does my cookum talk about mental health? How does my community talk about mental health? How do we take care of our people? How do they differ? And that is where it all started for me. To be honest, I did not think I was going to become a researcher. I did not start off in this space. But when you allow yourself to be open and you allow, you know, to just sit and listen and learn, people will just take you under your wing or under their wing and say, okay, well, I'm going to teach you this now. And that's all that it's been for me. So I think that's as much as I can speak to researching as possible because really I'm not a researcher. I'm just a person with lived experience. Okay. Can Thank I you. just, I want to jump on that because yes, please. as because uh, you asked about why being a community researcher, I know when people hear researchers, we always talk about talking to the experts, right? And uh, I think being a community researcher or and being someone who works with indigenous uh, communities, uh, I am not an expert on anything. I mean, I've read things and I know things, but uh, when it comes to lived experiences or the, the needs of community, they are the experts. Um, one of the reasons I've asked, I, I, I wanted to make sure this podcast included Cheyenne, I would love to have had my community partner here as well, because if we're talking about research that uh, is with the community, I always like to have my community partner. Um, but at least having Cheyenne here helps uh, bring her lived experience and her knowledge as an Indigenous woman, because I am not. And so, and um, again, Sure, I'm the researcher, she's my assistant, but I learned from her and from my other our other assistant, Selena, um, my project coordinator, Lori, all the time. That like they are constantly teaching me um, you know, the different ways of of, of doing so many different things, right? I, and I learn from the young people that we work with. Um, so yeah, I, I would never say I'm I'm an expert. Uh like I, I know stuff, I've read things, um, you know. Things I say are based on having uh, learned lots of things, but I would never say I'm an expert in the experiences of the people that I work with, which is why I like to, why I think podcasts are great because it makes it easier to bring their voices to the table. Um, and uh, yeah, I think it's really important for me to, to, to acknowledge that, that it's a constant learning and sharing experience and, and, uh, and, and, that's how we try and, and create our research experience with the the partners that we're working with. And I definitely, none of us know as much as uh, Carola Cunningham, who is the woman that is the CEO of Niganan and has started all of this. And, uh, you know, and I, I am so blessed to ha be working with her and the other elders. Um, you know, they invite us to ceremony. I get to go do that this weekend. And I 
um, you know, I'm learning each time. And, and as someone who that's not part of my culture, it's, it's really amazing to be uh, able to participate and to share in, in the teachings of other indigenous uh, peoples in, you know, uh, that that are here so so yeah, yeah. It, it was really important for, to say that because again I learn from Shan all the time like she's uh helps me a lot in this journey that we're taking together yeah and I definitely um we're gonna dive pretty deep into Niganam because um it's such a fantastic project and disclaimer uh we may have talked about it prior to this episode <laughs> so um but before we get I've been talking to everybody about yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> Before we get thank you into it, um, I do want to go back a little bit to your first project, um, Voices from the Street, because I think that uh, the method that you used there and kind of what you learned um, and how that project helped spark your dissertation also like is a very interesting um, thing. So can you tell us about like the photo voice, Voices from the Street? Um, a little bit about that project, why you chose that method, and sure. maybe, you know, what you learned from that, maybe going forward into this project, how it's made you a, a different researcher, a better researcher. Yeah, and I'm going to go back to, you said something about, I want to ask you to, as sociologists, oh, right? public health though, right? Yes. Yes, okay. So, I but, but no, that's okay, mm -hmm. because a lot of times people think I'm either a social worker or in sociology, but it is because... Um, the social is such an important part of health. We talk about social determinants of health. Mm -hmm. um, and so from a public health perspective, it is important to understand uh, social aspects of life, like poverty, like uh, housing and those kinds of things. And so I think that's why a lot of times when people hear of the work I do, they have then they hear public health, they're like, huh? Um, but, uh, you know, the social is, I would say, uh, a incredibly important part of health. Uh, so, so, and, and when we talk about social disparity and income inequality and all those kinds of things. So, um, and that kind of why I did a dissertation in public health, working with people that were unhoused was again, to understand how social systems, how political systems impact people's lives, which sort of down the road impact public health, right? If we're, when we talk about public health and we talk about population health, we're talking about pe keeping people, like as a whole, um, healthy and safe. And, and you can't do that without addressing poverty and income disparity and those kinds of things. Yeah. And so in working with um, the young people, the youth at Boyle Street Community Services, um, you know, there's lots of different ways that you can collect data. And I am a very um, vocal qualitative researcher. Um, I respect quantitative research. I think numbers are important. They help uh, give us an understanding of, again, when we talk about population and public health, of what is happening. Um, but I don't like doing it myself. Um, I, you know, I much prefer collecting stories. Um, and stories are also important for uh, helping us to understand what is happening from a public health perspective, because you can get numbers of how many people are suffering from whatever. Um, but when you get that one story of that person that is suffering from an ailment or suffering from poverty, that sometimes can help lead to more action, right? So stories are so important. And so I, I'm a big fan of collecting stories. Um, and there's lots of different ways. So, you know, traditionally with qualitative research, a lot of people do interviews or focus groups and those kinds of things. But there's a lot of different methodologies out there. And I, I like to use what's called arts-based methods. Um, and photo voice is one kind of arts-based method where you 
ask people to take photos of experiences. Um, and so with the voices from the street, uh, we were interested in what was happening in terms of downtown changing and gentrification. So I asked yeah. the young people to, you know, take some pictures that sort of show your life right now that um, things are changing downtown. And so they they took a lot of pictures about that, but they also just took a lot of pictures of what their day-to-day -day life was. So, um, you know, there's a lot of, lot of photos of, um, you know, people sleeping on the street um, or of uh, people hanging out with their friends on the street or just walking around. Um, and then there's the this amazing photo that shows that disparity in the line where there's Rogers Place and across the street is Boyle Street with people that are sitting outside and to show that line that um, of disparity that is in our city and it's literally like across the street. Well, like the other side of the tracks. Yeah, absolutely. Which literally, and it's the thinnest. The, the tracks literally, are literally they were there. Here. Yeah. There were literally tracks here. <laughs> yeah. Like where McEwen is and where Rogers Place is, there were literal tracks. We're um, built on them. They still exist here. You yeah. can Yeah, if you them. go underneath. Yeah. So, so right? So there, that, that uh, is there. And, and um, the reason I, I just personally liked it, but I found it was a really interesting way to get, and, and it is a way that is used when, um, you know, depending on who you're working with, might not be interested in having like a long interview or, mm -hmm. or sometimes I remember I'd interview some youth and I'd ask them questions. They're like, yep, no. <laughs> but as soon as I, we started sharing photos, what you do is they take the photo and then you sit down and you kind of say, well, tell me what's going on in this picture. And, and ideally if you can get a group together, then they start to have a conversation about what's happening. And so I, I ended up getting some really rich, amazing stories based on the photos that were taken. Um, so the photos in themselves can be data, but it's really the story around the photo. And, um, so that was the one I, I mainly use, but with the project that we're working on now, we're, um, and, and we just had a meeting the other day with some of the workers at Omamu and Gogamik, and, and they said, you know, are, are there other things like digital storytelling? And, and, and basically what we're saying is, any arts-based method, like we're going to be doing, they're going to be doing crafting activities, like they did a ribbon skirt workshop the other day. Um, and the idea is doing those activities and then, talking about those activities is the catalyst for collecting your data, right? Is you did this ribbon skirt activity. So, you know, tell me what it was like, what did you learn? Those kinds of things. So, so really the arts-based methods, again, the, the thing that's created can be part of that. That's data in itself, but it's for me, what I like is the story around why that thing was created or the meaning behind that. And then it can lead to other things like in, in the, the voices from the street, there was a picture of a young woman collecting bottles. And, uh, you know, at first it was like talking about collecting bottles and why they need to collect bottles in order to help pay for rent or whatever it is. But then it led to, uh, oh, and make sure you don't fall asleep inside the dumpster. And it was like, what? And, you know, like my friend died because they got caught in the forks. And, and then we, I, it led to a story of, well, why are young people sleeping in these dumpsters and they said well sometimes there's no place to stay you might get banned from the shelters and then why are you getting banned from shelters and so that actually led to an investigation of uh you know youth in Edmonton being banned from places that are normally you know the only safe place that they might have yeah. for whatever reasons and again that led to the whole connections to settler colonialism and neoliberalism and all that fun well, stuff that's right like something that um so as we said at the beginning, like we're really here to try to break down concepts because we want everyone to be able to understand 
you know, why this research matters, how it came about. So maybe this is a good place to explore some of those concepts, like what settler colonialism is, what neoliberalism is. Um, I think we all know what capitalism is, but we may not have a full understanding of how it plays that role in public health. So when you're talking about neoliberalism and settler colonialism, well, what are you talking about? Just to like help us understand like what that means. So I'll go to neoliberalism and I'll touch on settler colonialism because I feel that Shan probably has a lot more to say about it than yeah. I do. <laughs> Please enlighten <laughs> us. Like let us let us know. So when we're talking about neoliberalism, there's lots of different ways you can talk about it. But in a nutshell, it's basically um, policies, ideologies that sort of focus on a free market system where the free market is basically um the answer to all of society's woes and so it leads to uh you know privatization of a lot of things and you know whatever privatize or you know or commodification of things so you know commodification of gold and those kinds of things like yeah, water water or housing yeah. or healthcare right and so when you go into like really hardcore neoliberal policies it's well if we privatized education and healthcare, it would probably run better than it does now because the market will, right? That's kind of the idea. Um, and, uh, and, but what happens is those policies lead to those that can't afford the private healthcare, or can't afford the increased housing prices or can't afford the education to then get lost, right? And, and it's a very much, uh, well, if you work hard and pull yourself by your bootstraps and all that kind of stuff, then you'll make it. And why? Which is where maybe is, enters settler colonialism. <clears throat> well, and even, again, my, my knowledge of settler colonialism is it, it's uh, that the white settlers came, stayed, and the idea that the settler is superior to the indigenous peoples that were here, which is why these things perpetuate because there still is a we know better so that's why we're going to take your children away because you're not raising them in a way that we feel is correct and 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 it is connected to that neoliberal ideology because there's a lot of you know well if you just did it this way then you wouldn't yeah. be living in poverty or you wouldn't take drugs and those kinds of things. So, what so a that's privileged kind of, thing for people yeah. to say. Yeah and so but it is again very much from a, a an ideology of superiority, right? So, and then let's yeah, let go on explore this about and that expand one. upon this, please. So, recognizing um, some of the learning that I have been doing um, from uh, Black people in Canada and here in the states as well, I recognize that a lot of this knowledge comes from um, Black Lives Matter um, info posts and people who are sharing information on it. So, I just want to acknowledge that. Um, that I am building off some of these ideas that they talk about. Um, so more directly, settler colonialism stems from white supremacy. That is what Cynthia is trying to say. The superiority thing is white supremacy. And white supremacy justifies colonialism. And colonialism can appear in several different ways, right? Economic colonialism, settler colonialism. Settler colonialism specifically is about land. It's about land and sovereignty and money, right? Neoliberalism. And that's how that feeds into it. It's a direct line of ideas of superiority and racism built in 
two ideas of colonialism. So um, settler colonialism specifically was backed up um, by the idea of terra nullius. Um, I believe it was 1492. Please, if they bleep it out, it's because I got the date wrong. Um, <laughs> um, and some pope. I don't take time to learn <laughs> oppressors' names, but it's some pope. And the terra nullius and other documents of the like basically specified no man's land. That if you came to a piece of land, and it was, air quotes now, uncivilized, meaning that it did not occup- it was not occupied by people that the colonists or uh, uh, colonizers respected, basically. Um, so Terra Nullius was the justification for settler colonialism here in on Turtle Island, right? And was the idea that you could claim any land for God and country if it was occupied by uncivilized people. And they put us in the same category as animals. So if you came across an island that was not occupied by people and only deer, settler colonialism. And we were included right along with that. And so it's the recognition that Terra Nullius did not even recognize indigenous people as peoples. They thought we were less than, that we weren't even necessarily humans. And that was the justification around settler colonialism. And that still, those ideologies still exist and are are embedded. And um, Canada is built on settler colonialism. And we have never done the work The government has never done the work to actually remove settler colonialism from our systems. So we still operate in it daily and it affects so well all of our systems realistically. And it feeds into so many different things. We didn't have patriarchy before settler colonialism came. We didn't have money. We didn't have family abuse, domestic violence. We didn't have substance abuse. Our cookums even say that... uh, there was less, uh, sorry, actually, no, I'm not going to share that bit. But um, <laughs> but yeah, all of these things exist because of Terra Nullius and exist because of settler colonialism. And so these are the ideas that we're trying to touch on, that we're trying to talk about. It affects everyone. Settler colonialism is not just something witnessed and experienced by Indigenous peoples. It's, it's everyone that lives within our colonial systems. So... That's my bit on settler colonialism. Thank you so much for sharing that with <laughs> yeah. us. Yeah, and, 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 and one of the things, too, because I had to make the distinction, there is a distinction between colonialism and settler colonialism because, like, if you look at colonialism uh, that happened on the African continent, it was more, you know, the, the colonists came and, and they, you know, stole, exploited, exploited yeah. but they didn't stay, whereas the settler colonialism, like, the people stayed. And so that's part of... What happens here is that then the descendants of the settlers or myself, it's an interesting, I have an interesting conversation with myself and with with others about, you know, my descendants, well, my parents immigrated, right? So I, I, my descendants are not of settlers, but they were colonizers, right? Mm -hmm. Um, But still as a, as a child of immigrants, I am still a settler on this land and, and have to acknowledge that. Uh, you know, it was still, you know, my parents came here for a better life, but again, at the backs of, of the indigenous people that get, that whose land was taken away. Right. So, um, but, but that's the thing is still that, that white supremacy feeling of 
the settler is superior to the indigenous person. And so policies that are made reflect that. And, and, you know, when we talk about the work that we're doing right now, we're talking about, I, I remember having a conversation about how we're looking at preventing young people from being unhoused and, and uh, our project creator was like, well, you're not, it's not really prevention when they were in the foster system, right? Like if you really want to talk about prevention, you have to stop um, indigenous young people from um, getting taken away from their families. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I know in the field there is recognition. Um, I remember we were on a webinar and there was, uh, he, he's a professor in social work out of Dalhousie and, and uh, he said, you know, I think that, we have to stop taking indigenous uh, children away from their families, even if it is a possibly violent situation, because that's still worse. And I remember Shan going, I've never heard a white person say that before. I did say that. It was surprising. <laughs> but, and, and so because, the, because it's something that we say in our communities all the time. That's yeah. the thing is a lot of the time we hear these ideas repeated and everyone goes, wow, what a great idea. And we're like, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. My auntie said it 40 years ago in a conference. And they didn't like it. They booed her off the stage. Something like that. You know, that stuff happens all the time. So I just want to acknowledge that too, that these ideas come from our indigenous peoples. Yeah. And it's, again, Corolla, she's been talking about this for 40 plus years, this right? Is, yeah, that's exactly it. And and finally, you know, she's the type of woman that's just like, I'm just going to do it. Um, <laughs> and, and she is. And oh, lo and behold, like the other uh, place that they started, you know, 10 plus years ago, Ambrose Place, now is touted as, oh, look at this um, space where uh, we're reducing the cost to the healthcare system and to the criminal justice system because, oh, an indigenous organization is, indigenous people are taking care of indigenous people, right? And so part of, I, I see our role as researchers is documenting this so that we can share the stories. And sadly, again, because we're in a settler colonial state, the story of Ambrose and the story of Omamu and Gogomek sadly often doesn't get listened to unless you get the white researcher sharing the story, which I know is very frustrating, I would imagine. Um, so, you know, that's kind of like as an ally, uh, that's what we try and do. But also I acknowledge that it's very frustrating that it shouldn't be just because I told a story that now people are listening to it. I mean, I know people were all like, oh, now that Dan Levy's talking about the Indigenous yeah. chorus, everyone's listening, right? Well, I mean, uh, we, we talked about, touched on it a little bit before. No offense to Dan we, Levy, right? <laughs> no, thank you. Dan Levy is fantastic. Yeah, we yeah. do but like him. at the same time... We were talking about um, white savior. Is it yeah, white, white savior complex? White yes. savior complex, and it's something that, like, you know, I you you struggle with as a white person because you see all of this this stuff happening, and I always try to see like how can I help, and so I talk talk to some of my indigenous friends and some people that I know that I might be able to get involved in unhoused projects and stuff like that, but I have to try and find a way to do it where I'm not feeding into the, the this white savior complex. And I, yeah, I'm, I'm here to like listen and learn and trying to try see what I can do to, I don't know, help our communities and no, that's everything a very like good that. Thing. It is. Um, yeah. So I don't, I think we should probably a good time to take a short break. You have been listening to Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast with Brittany Eklund and Dylan Cave. We are going to uh, go to our ads. And just so you know, 
we are not paid or sponsored for any of these ads. We do it out of the goodness of our hearts and we just like supporting uh, local sustainable businesses. So without further ado, here is my co-host, Brittany Eklund. So today we're going to talk about honey. And who doesn't love bees? Nobody. That's who. Urban beekeeping is a big step in helping protect our pollinators, increasing their habitat, and supporting plant diversity. So did you know that close to half a million bees currently make McEwen University home as part of McEwen University's urban beekeeping project? I did not. Well, they do. And every fall, you can find a novel batch of McEwen honey. And the great thing about this is that it actually tastes different every year because the bees pollinate different flowers every year. Um, so if you want to try it, you can make a beeline this November for the McEwen Bookstore and support bees and biodiversity by grabbing a jar or one of the other great products featuring McEwen honey. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, come grab a jar. It's the bees knees. Oh, okay, welcome back uh, again to Research Recasted. My name is Brittany Eklund. I'm, I'm Dylan sitting- Cave. Oh. That's Dylan Cave, <laughs> and we are sitting here today for our very first, very special episode with Cynthia Pudu and Cheyenne Gray Eyes, and we are about to talk about decolonizing transitions from care. Um, so let's dive right in. So when we're talking about decolonizing transitions from care, what does that mean? Probably the decolonization should have happened before the children were put in care. But that is a good point. Yes. So, and we talked about that before. Yeah. So I, I talk about there's levels of, um, I used to say prevention, but I think it's intervention because we're not preventing when someone is already in care. So now it's an intervention of trying to keep a young person housed once they transition out of care. So when, when, and and again, I'm not a social worker. I'm not like, I can, I'm continually learning about the process of what happens when someone is placed in care, whether they should be in care or not. But um, once a young person turns 18, that's the transition point, right? Uh, You know, you were a ward of the state or the government or whatever it is, you're being cared for by, um, uh, a foster family and and it's usually not an indigenous family because there's also something called kinship care where they try and place children which is what should be done in in uh, the care of family or you know kin to and and family from an indigenous perspective is not like your sister it's a large you can confirm that for me Cheyenne yeah no it's true uh, is a large group of people um, but the interesting about kinship care is you don't get nearly the amount of funds you do is when you are a foster parent. Um, so a lot more money goes into the foster care system. So that's, here's a colonized approach. Let's give more money to the non-Indigenous families that are taking care of Indigenous children as opposed to the kin of these Indigenous children. Um, so that's part of the problem. Well, I want to I want to say something really quick too is, um, you know, growing up with with indigenous friends and um, non-indigenous friends alike. Um, I had one specific family that was a foster family and I had no idea what um, what I was seeing when I was a young person going over to their house, having, having dinner with their family and their brothers and sisters that were their foster brothers and sisters um, from these indigenous communities. And uh, I, didn't, I didn't know what 
was happening in like I didn't I didn't know what um, these cultural I, what, what would I call cultural sanitization or call cultural cleansing that genocide. Gen, cultural, <laughs> cultural genocides genocide, yeah. that that are happening yeah. in in these foster care like it looked like a loving family environment to me but they're all they're taking cultures outside and they're not they're not allowing these children to um, be in their culture and I like it's seeing it years later it just horrifies me that I um, you know, I didn't know what that was. And yeah. And, and I would say like, it's the system, right? Because, you know, a lot of those families, like they, they were just taking children in. I mean, part of it's a white savior or whatever, but, but, you know, they are taking children. And I know some of the people I worked with, the, their foster families were caring and took care of them, but because, but that disconnect from the indigenous culture was still there. Right. And, and, um, so what happens when a young person comes out of care, like, you know, some of them, yes, they're in a family that helps them transition and they do okay. A lot of them end up, up in group homes, um, you know, depending on the situation that they're in. And unfortunately, it can happen a lot. They might not have learned a lot of the tools that you need to um, care for yourself when, you know, to, to get a job and pay your rent and all these other just life skills that... I would argue a lot of 18-year-olds that are first-year students at McEwen probably would not be successful at, you know, like if all of a sudden, boom, you cannot live in your parents' yeah, house anymore, right? I mean, anymore, the difference right? here is, and forgive me if I'm like wrong, but like the safety net aspect is that a lot of people are able to not know exactly. until their mid-20s how to care for themselves you, that's in a basic right. way. Yeah. Instead, when you are a ward of the state at 18, bye-bye right? You are now out of care. And, um, and, and so the transition for these, uh, indigenous children, why we're calling it decolonization was again, it what you, you still can have, like you, you do have government assistance and you do have social work support and that kind of thing. But again, it's support from that colonial system that is quote unquote helping you. Right. And so that has not been successful because when you look at, um, the young people that are unhoused, many of them come from the care system. Many of them are indigenous. And so on top of the, you know, they might have not have learned the life skills or haven't had the opportunity or don't have that safety net. They also lost that cultural connection and the connection to the land. Those things that you said you were talking about, right, that you observed. And again, if we're talking about indigenous homelessness, it's not just not having a shelter. It is that lack of connection. And so yeah, the I decolonized wanna, approach sorry, is... If I can for one please. second. Oh, and yeah, and again, ahead, please correct ahead. me if I'm no, wrong. No, no, no. No, it's, it is not about correction at all. But I think for one second, I'm just going to bring it back. I'm going to bring it a yes, lot please. back. Please. Right, is that care as we know it today is a continuation of assimilation here in Canada. That's what it is. It's a continuation of what we saw in residential schools, day schools, 60 scoops. That's what CFS is, right? Because we recognize the purpose of, of residential schools, right? Move the Indian from the child, which literally meant removing the child from its home. And I don't know if that definition sounds kind of familiar, right? Yep. But CFS, it's literally right, it's right there. It's right in front. It's not hard to make the connections. and. I think regardless, like what you were speaking to earlier, that you were like, oh, they seem to be in a loving family, right? That's 
great. I'm so glad that they made it to a loving family. But it still does not change the fact that adoption is trauma. Yeah. Especially adoption within colonial systems. We have our own methods of adopting that were not traumatic because, you know, we had to have something. But adoption within colonial systems is trauma. Regardless if you go to a good home or not, you experience trauma. If you talk to any adoptee across the board, regardless if they manage to go into CFS or not, if they manage to get adopted or not, that act of removal from your home is forever embedded. And so recognizing that first and foremost, it's a lot easier to draw the line of being like, well, if care is a continuation of residential schools and 60 Scoop and all of this trauma that Indigenous peoples have experienced, it's pretty easy to say at that point that it needs to be decolonized or removed completely, in my opinion, because we always had systems before colonial systems that protected our people and raised our babies. That always existed. It's not as if they created systems for us to fix one that wasn't working, right? And so acknowledging that, that it is a continuation and it broadens this idea of what decolonization looks like in these spaces because it will be abrupt, you know, 30 years down the line, you will have the same kinds of conversations about CFS that we are now currently having about residential schools. We will see that. Those conversations are already happening in my circles, but it just hasn't hit the outer edges of society yet. It's still bouncing back within these pockets of indigenous people because we know the truth. We know the reality of the situation, what happens in those systems, how you become disconnected. How are you supposed to know who you are when you're disconnected from your family and your culture? How are you supposed to operate in the world without those groundings? That's what we're removing our kids from. That's what we're trying, attempting to give back to them because they deserve to have it. They shouldn't, that shouldn't have happened in the first place. And they deserve to feel wanted and belonged and, and, and understand their relationship to the land. That's what's so important about this project is a lot of people live in these spaces and never understand how they're connected to them. For a lot of these kids, their blood is literally running through the ground. Our people are buried here. If you think about like generational, you know, your body knows it pulls you towards something. It's something innate that we recognize in our communities that these youth and kids often understand but don't know what to go or where to go to. And that's where Corolla's work is so important. We need elders to say, I have community. I have culture over here. You're a part of this. You belong here. That's such a huge part of it. How many people walk through the system without a sense of belonging, you know? Yeah. So That's so heavy. It is. <laughs> it is. It is really heavy. But and you know, and my friend that I was telling you earlier about, um, I won't share too much because her experiences aren't mine to tell, but she's my best friend. I love her anything in the whole world. And she often um juggled with that idea. She entered CFS, was part of the sixties scoop, was adopted out to a white family who was really good to her, included culture and all this other stuff. Right. And she didn't want to include herself in those who had also experienced trauma. But we had to break it down and recognize that regardless of the fact that she went to a good home and she has parents that love her, she was still removed and she has still has trauma from that. And that will never go away. So we recognize and like acknowledge that regardless of your experiences with adopting or CFS, that all are traumatic in colonial systems. 
And maybe we can do something to alleviate that by having Indigenous people run our programs because we need the return of our systems. Yeah. And I, I think that's honestly like the best possible segue that we can have um, talking now about like Omamu and Gogamik because something that's so like interesting about this project is the intergenerational housing aspect of it. So can you guys kind of tell us like what works about this model and why is this such a promising um, like way to help kids and youth transition or like reclaim some sense of identity or some sense of family? Yeah. Like tell us, tell us all about um, Niganan and Oma Mumwangogam. And I would say, like, ideally, it's the, again, let's not take children away, but recognizing that children were taken and are still being taken into the system, that that transition part that were the these young people that we're working with are transitioning out of a colonial system. And, and um, in the past, that transition would just be continued through this colonial system, whereas at Omamu Wangogamek, it is uh, an Indigenous-led organization. It's Indigenous people that are now um, helping these young people transition um, and bringing them back to what they they lost when they were in the system. Um, and, uh, and I think Cheyenne will be able to answer this better than I can, but I would say... Carola would say is why is this successful because it's what we've always done I would imagine Uh, multi-generations taking care of each other um, living together um, not in the traditional nuclear family well traditional sorry like waspy traditional yeah waspy (laughs) right like way to put it yeah um because you know an interesting thing with some of the work I did before on on housing and trying to understand um the complexities of why it was hard to get housed, um, even through our housing first system, which is supposed to be like the gold standard of housing, it is very complex. There's lots of rules that again are perpetuated by this uh, settler colonial system of this is the way you should house people. But also land ownership. And land ownership. But just the housing ownership, like if you want to get housing first, um, they the rule is you have to house someone in a place that has a bedroom for each child. So one, if you have a single mother with two, three, four kids, um, not a lot of people can afford a six bedroom house, Yeah. right? And most indigenous people are saying, I, I don't need a four bedroom house. My children are gonna be in a room together or with me. And again, Cheyenne, you can, you can, clarify that but like that's the thing is again it's this settler view of what housing should be and so then it makes it difficult for someone to find a home because they've put these rules that don't even work for a lot of families well heck i mean i'm i'm a single person i live by myself and it's hard for me to find housing for like an appropriate price range like it's it's extremely difficult so i mean well, and, and I'm extremely privileged. Don't get me wrong. Like I, I have every benefit that I could ever ask for. And I'm still, you know, I still struggle. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think when you try to define housing in the way that our systems have tried to define housing, the reality is that they're defining family. Right. 
Um, and to from anyone that comes from a different culture, you would recognize that, like, why would you try to define family by one culture? It's a pretty narrow view to kind of come at the situation with. I mean, that's a nice way of saying it. But, um, yeah, the truth is, is that family looks different in so many different spaces and home especially looks different. And for indigenous people specifically, our way of passing on knowledge and raising our children was a circular process that happened through our grandparents and our grandchildren and even our great grandparents back before settler colonialism impacted our life expectancy rates. We lived to be quite old. Great grandparents living with their great grandchildren in a multi-generational home was not rare. If anything, well, it was the society that we lived in. So it wasn't any different. I mean, that's just how things were done. But it's how we passed on knowledge. Could you imagine learning from a 92-year-old as a four-year-old? Like, 90, 92 years. That is so much life lived. So much more life lived than the 22-year-old preschooler they would have gotten today. No offense to that preschooler. I'm, I'm sure, the preschool teacher, I'm sure she's very nice. But, <laughs> but, the, but the reality is, is that when you have someone of that age transmitting this knowledge to to the younger generations you see healthier kids kids that have a broader understanding of their worldview and their culture and just in general a a healthier way of seeing the world because when you learn from older people who are really if you imagine it are at the top of the tree they've done all the climbing they've done they you know their arms have been scratched but now they're sitting up there and they're enjoying the sunshine and they can see they can see things that us younger people can't see, and it allows our families to operate in this way. And so we can see the interruption that Cynthia is talking about, that oftentimes we put mandates on what Indigenous family looks like. And you can't define that, especially from a colonial perspective. You can't even attempt to define it. And, and the reality is that most people don't understand because of closed-mindedness that families look different. Yeah, I mean, even look at how our, you know, historically, like, blood quantum has been kind of used to either, like, include or exclude yes. people. It's this really narrow idea that literally only your DNA or what science says matters matters. Um, so, yeah, I wasn't, I guess when I'm asking about, like, why this multi-generation, multi-generational housing works, um, it's more of a perspective of, you know, culturally you're saying that you know these these homes used to all live together yes. and learn from each other so i think multi-generational oh my gosh i'm really bad at saying that multi-generational housing um is a model that we see being used in different parts of the world i think because there is a lot to learn um but i think in this specific venture and in this specific context it means something very different. It's not looking at, oh, well, older people need stimulation. So if we build a preschool in an old folks home, it's like more healthy. Like this is different. This, this isn't is just, yeah. So I guess my question was, what makes this project successful from a cultural standpoint? Like, why is this better does that make sense? Maybe I'm asking yeah. a stupid question, but I'm trying to get really at the meat of like, what's so exciting about this? Like what gives this promise to be adopted as a mass model? Well, it is 
a return to our old systems, as Corolla would say. And and it doesn't uh, get any more complicated than that. I think that's really, really the point, is that when you return to our systems before we experience trauma, we just we just have you know a, a better chance i guess and yeah so i'll i mean i think part of it is from from you know what i've been learning is um being surround like like systems that have always been there but these young people have not experienced that and so now they are um, finding out what it's like to be living in a place where you are surrounded by elders and people that have, you know, similar lived experiences and similar culture and, and that, um, and reintroducing them to the ceremony and reintroducing them to the land and to medicine picking and all those kinds of things that they would have lost when they were, uh, you know, before they came here. Um, it, you know, it's an interesting thing. Kurla calls it spiritual reparenting. Um, and, and she talks about it as not just with these young people, but you could have like a 50-year-old or a 60-year-old that just for whatever reason has lost that. Um, and 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 we talk about cultural continuity. So I think that that's from what I'm learning is that's part of it is that um, – for many of the people that they work with, that Niganon works with, whether it's at Omamu and Gogomek or at Ambrose Place, it's that loss of um, uh, what? Oh, the colonial brainwashing that that Corolla refers to, and so they need this spiritual reparenting to bring them back to what they lost, and so I think that's one of the things that is going to make it successful is is that continual bringing back and. And that recognition that it's a long process. I mean, there are some young people that right now are like, eh, I don't really want to go. And and Corolla just keeps going, you know what, just try it. Just see. And once you're there, um, you know, and, and again, not I, I've only gone to a few times and I haven't uh, been involved in a lot of ceremony, but just the stories that I'm hearing, and I know stories I've heard from Cheyenne that you can reiterate, is, is there's something that happens when you find that connection, that something that's awakened in you that's... Actually, yeah, that's exactly what I wanted to lead into. Sorry. So that's perfect. <laughs> okay. No, that's fantastic. Thank you so much. But that that really is. I mean, that's why I brought up home and why I brought up family. I mean, to some people, it might not be an inherent connection. But what she just pointed out is just that is that I was at one point a reconnecting native. Um, and what that looked like for me is reclamation of home and reclamation of family. Um, you know, I won't talk about my family situation, but uh, my family is not traditional, like in the sense of... Um, indigenous ceremony and all that sort of stuff um so home to me is the cultural connections that i have made with elders and cookums who have taught me how to exist in this world as a nehio isko as a cree woman what that looks like because it it does it looks different and for some of these youth they will have an experience similar to mine they will create family outside of structures that they had known because indigenous adopting systems just recognizes that once you are claimed by an elder, you're theirs, your family, it doesn't matter at this point because they'll take care of you. So not only are we hoping, you know, that they'll get some stability and some housing out of this program, for some people, it's a redefinition of home and family. Who becomes your siblings? Who becomes your parents? The spiritual reparenting that, that um, Cynthia reference towards Corolla 
And um, in ceremony, you find home. And as I talked before too, right, that I said that the blood of their ancestors are built into the ground that we live on, that we walk on daily. That's part of that land acknowledgement too, hey? Is that we walk on bodies of thousands, of millions of people that existed on this land and had rich and full lives of language and ceremony and children and, and eating and laughter and song and music. It is all of these things. And for some of these people, for some of these youth, they tap into that. It's insane to watch, you, you, you know, and they, they come into a sense of home and knowing. And that might not be the case for everyone, and that might not be the situation for everyone, but Corolla and the people on this project are creating spaces to make it possible. That's the thing, that this wouldn't have been possible because those spaces were never open to these youth in the past. And even just access to spaces, regardless if they want to use it or not, is part of their reclamation as an Indigenous person. Yeah, I just want to like touch on something because, you know, we're talking about, you know, unhoused youth. I've heard you um, use the term homeless as well during our conversation. We're talking about housing and home. And I just want to kind of talk about like those those concepts. So what's the difference, I guess, between being unhoused and homeless or like are those is the nomen is it nomenclature or is this a different state of being? Yeah, definitely. Um, homelessness, I would more connect to the idea of rootlessness. I will have to find the quote because that is not my own. That is someone else's terminology. I can't remember exactly who I pulled that from. But rootlessness is the idea that exactly that of, of these youth that we're talking about, that lack of cultural connection, of family connection, not whoing, knowing who you are. That is rootlessness. Right. And houselessness is just a structural thing. You can be rooted and be houseless. You can experience rootlessness and be housed. They operate against and together with each other, but they are not the same thing. Yeah. And for me, that's a big part of it. And and, and it's my education. And, and sometimes I fall back on the homelessness terminology, but try and, and use the word unhoused because... Um, being unhoused means lack of structure, but some people that are living um, in the River Valley in a tent that we would call homeless, actually that is their home. Um, and a lot, and I have learned from, uh, you know, indigenous peoples that are in the River Valley. When you say they're homeless, it's like, no, I'm not. Like this is I'm my on home. my land. I'm on my yes. land, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and so, uh, you know. It clearly comes with difficulties, like a lot of the people that are unhoused in the River Valley in the winter, like there, there, there is difficulties and it can be dangerous for them and those kinds of things. And so it, it's important to, to work and try and um, help them find a place uh, that might be different than that if, if they are ready for that. Um, but it is important to understand that the land is, is home and, and that's again, what uh, Niganan is working on is that connection to that land that yes, we are helping you get shelter, a structure, because for many people that is a safer place to be, but at the same time, recognizing that uh, being on the land is important. And, and it's, a, it's an interesting thing that we're working on too, talking about urban indigenous housing, because um, it is more difficult to make those connections to the land or to be able to go 
medicine picking and, and those kinds of things when within the city limits of Edmonton, there might not be as many spaces. And so those are some complexities that happen with Indigenous organizations working within an urban environment uh, because that land uh, reclamation, that land back is so important, but sometimes in a you know, in the urban jungle, it's it's hard to find. And I know there are spaces that and they're working on spaces within the city limits, but that that adds to the complexities of, of some of the work that uh, Omamu and Gogamik is doing and Ambrose and, and other Indigenous uh, organizations and, um, you know, in this urban environment. Yeah, um, there's something that I do have to ask. Uh, I know we're running a little bit late on time, but something, um, okay. Cynthia says we're I'm good. good. I'm good. Um, but this is a research podcast. Um, so something I'm very curious about that we have talked about before, Cynthia, is this um, incorporating indigenous ways of knowing and methodologies into this research that's happening um, at Omamu Wangogamik. So something you mentioned that I'd love to talk about is like, is it the two-eyed seeing, um, but also about how you're doing the research there using maybe some non- and I say traditional in air quotes because like maybe non-traditional academic yeah. ways of researching. So I, I was just curious about what those may be. And So I'll touch on what the two-eyed seeing means. And it's kind of the idea is with one eye, you use the indigenous ways of knowing that that I think Shan can probably talk on, talk about better than I can. And then with the other eye, you use the Western approach. And, and through both those eyes, you come up with... Uh, something that will be beneficial to everyone because I think there can be, you can use Western methodologies to help learn about things, but recognizing that the indigenous ways are important. But it was interesting as we were talking about this as, and as Cheyenne was talking about um, the, the discoveries that the young people are making. And, and I just started like literally just started perusing a book called research. Is it research is ceremony? Yeah, or research is ceremony. Is ceremony that everything we're talking about that is research, right? Like that, learning that knowledge that is created by being together that's research from a western perspective it might not be um and so we have to again part of part of this this project for me is to also educate other researchers about working with indigenous organizations and how we need to um learn from and use these methodologies and accept them as just as valid as any other <laughs> methodology because that is that is the research we are doing. Um, everything that we're talking about, that is research. Now, the Western part is we're documenting it and we're putting it and whatever, but everything we're talking about, that's research and you can you can add to that more yeah. than I can. Uh, I mean, everything um, in that space that the uh, youth are living in, um, it's all indigenous uh, methodology. Uh, in that sense, like in the program itself, there aren't like Western approaches. I mean, when it's run by indigenous people, it's kind of hard to have a Western approach because um, the whole point is indigenous people running indigenous systems create indigenous excellency, basically, or at least that's how I see it. Because when people achieve things, you know, from their indigenous, it's it just it, it blows my mind. And I, and I love to see it, but um, I'm losing the train of my thought because I had some Indigenous ways of knowing. Oh, the thank research. you. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> Sorry, guys. Um, 
yeah, definitely like um, sharing circles is a big part of um, the practical research um, that we're doing. And I mean, sharing circles have been around, well, I don't know how long. We haven't put a date on it. <laughs> Oral culture kind of makes that a little difficult. <laughs> but um, yeah, no, it, and just use, uh, utilizing systems already in place. Um, so um, ceremony specifically, and I know for a lot of people who are unfamiliar um, with indigenous peoples might not have an understanding of what ceremony is, but it is a safe space where there are usually songs, language, and traditional practices that have been passed down for thousands of years. It's a very sacred space. Now, what I just explained to you isn't any ceremonial ceremony particularly, but just the general idea of it. And the idea of ceremony specifically and sharing circles even more specifically is to open that emotional guard and to kind of um, put it down and have a space facilitated by elders who are educated in moving conversations around in productive ways. So we depend on people who understand these indigenous systems better than I do and my other researchers is that we depend on them to facilitate good conversations for us. Because the reality is that us as researchers, we're really just going in and recording things. We're not doing any of the hard work that Carol is doing in that sense. But yeah, sharing circles is one of them. Um, we just did like a ribbon skirt teaching. So I'm very lucky I get to work with my cookum and we went and we did a ribbon skirt class and um, there were teachings involved in that. And it's a space for people to reconnect with artwork, with creation, which is something we all love to do, right? Get out of our heads for a little bit and, and make something beautiful. But the added thing to that is it's not just a skirt. These women sat and they smudged and we had a sharing circle. There was a song, you know, and then they sat at the sewing machine and they learned a brand new skill and they made new friends and they talked with people and they went away with a skirt that they could wear to ceremony and be proud of that it was something that they made. And that alone to me is a pretty great testimony. And Luckily, when I help my cookum teach those classes, I get to see, you know, 20 women every week go through this process. And for every woman and for every person that is making those skirts, it's different. And so we recognize lots of different ways of collecting knowledge within indigenous circles. And um, yeah. Yeah. And I think... Uh you know, some ways that I'm learning to delineate, not to delineate, but I, I think it's like a, a mesh, like it's kind of, it's all kind of melding into, into one. Um, but you know, as, so this is sort of a indigenous ways, but also working with community, which I find like every time I learn about indigenous ways of knowing, I'm like, oh, I'm pretty sure community-based research just appropriated all of this. Because yeah, we <laughs> talked about that. Is it chicken or the egg when it comes yeah. to community-based so, research? Because right? we don't know. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's about, um, uh, oh, train of thought died for Sorry, a second. No, 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 no. <laughs> um, but it, yeah, it's about learning from from the people that uh, you're with. It's about learning uh, from the community. And I still don't remember where I was going with this. And I'm not going to because there was like some <laughs> sort of amazing helps. point. <laughs> oh, yeah. But but um, 
as a community based partner, that's right. Okay, this is where it went. We were, I was talking with the community partner. We're doing a check in because it's like you've got to keep checking in with your partner um, to make sure things are okay. And there's, as a researcher and community partners, there can be power dynamics and all this kind of stuff, right? Um, and so we were checking in and to ensure that that the staff we're working with are comfortable with what we're doing. And, and there was a feeling, I think, that we were leading the process and they had to kind of do what we were asking them to do. And, and we were trying to assure them it's, no, you do your programming. We're coming along for the ride and just documenting what's happening and helping t- again to share this with other communities. And when we talk about the sharing circle, you know, in a research like focus group type thing, it would be me, the researcher asking questions and people would answer. Whereas in the sharing circle, when we're doing it for research, it's the elders are leading it. We're just recording what's happening. And then we're going to sit down and see what, what came out from those conversations. So we as researchers, we're not necessarily coming up with the questions. Like we're, we're consulting and saying we're interested in this, but it is the elders that are guiding us in, in the questions and in how we're going to have the conversation, which is very, very different than what like quote unquote traditional research would be. So me coming from a, a music background, um, we, we, in our research, in anything that we, we work in, I talk about this on a, on a few of our other episodes that are coming up, um, but is research creation. And the idea of research creation is, is the focus of your research, um, whatever it may be, community-based, um, is you documenting what's happening essentially is what they they've kind of described research creation to me as and so we document it with in the form of music videos in the form of documentaries or um, ethnographic films um, where we're, we're not commenting on what's happening we're just trying to kind of share what has happened if that is maybe similar. No, absolutely. And I think it's really important too, because as someone, a student of anthropology and sociology, I inherently recognize that in, or like in the past, people who have come into our communities because for exotic research in that sense, it always was an imposition of the researcher's view on the people's practices. And it allows for space for peoples to basically be discredited, right? I mean, we're talking about like Maslow's hierarchy of, mm-hmm. of, of needs. I mean, that's straight from Blackfoot teaching and he just flipped it around and stamped his name on it and he's like, it's mine now. But we recognize that that's like from indigenous knowledge. And so I think what being that it is so important that we allow indigenous peoples to lead these spaces and that we step away from researchers being the one to step in the middle of the sharing circle and delegate, okay, who's going to talk next? Okay, well, I want you to specifically answer this question. Of course. Right? It's like if we want to truly decolonize research in that sense, because you can't decolonize another space without decolonizing the space that you were also working within. So we cannot talk about decolonizing transitions out of care without talking about just about to say that decolonizing yes. research, right? It, <laughs> yeah. That's exactly it. So yeah. I think that this project specifically being the first that I'm a part of, I was very encouraged that I did see a separation of researchers opinion. And of course we've come a long way since um, Maslow, Ma- Maslow's hierarchy of needs. We've come a long way since then, but um there is inherent distrust 
in our communities because of it. So allowing indigenous peoples, but especially community members, not even indigenous researchers, because we still, as researchers, impose perspectives and opinions and, and all this other stuff. So, you know, lots of conversations about, about consent and, and, and power. And a lot of things go into making sure that as a researcher, you have removed yourself enough from the situation so that these youth can do the, the hard emotional work for themselves without us like stepping in the middle and being like, this is what you need. Exactly. Yeah. And it is, it, it is very time consuming. Um, Mm -hmm. like it takes a lot of time, but if you're going to do it well, um, you know, speed, do it right, do it right, do it well, do it ethically Ethically with consideration. Yeah. You need to take that time. And, and, you know, sometimes, you know, again, these, these colonial systems, whether it's your funding system or whatever it is, or the, how many papers have you published or whatever, like it, that ethics proposal. Yeah. Like that makes the process difficult. But, um, I think what we're hoping from this project is again, documenting the wonderful things that are happening, but also documenting how we're trying to decolonize that research process. Um, because, uh, you know, people say, well, we, you know, uh, reconciliation and all this kind of stuff. Well, then we need to do research differently, right? We, we need to, um, and, and it needs to be recognized differently as well. Uh, you know, as, as the, whatever it is that you're creating with your indigenous community. And again, that's why they are the experts, right? Um, we're just along for the ride and, and using our expertise, like we have the expertise in documentation and putting things together, but working together (laughs) with the, um, with the indigenous community. And, and, And that to me is the beauty is the, everybody has their strengths and we're all using our strengths to work together in this project to, um, to build something unique and, and document it. So, so I think transition, um, I'm going to maybe just ask like what, um, we've been talking about this project from our perspective or at least from, from everyone's working on it. What is the, the response from the community been that you've been working with? about this project. Are you like your community partners? Partners. Like as being part of research, I guess, or being involved with it. Like what has the response been? What are you seeing? What are you finding? What are you noticing? So we're still new, right? Like this is still really early. I I do know uh, that, especially Corolla, she's very, she really believes in the process because she thinks it's, she, she, uh, wants us documented and wants us to share these stories and and um, but also it's about for her it's really about reconnecting these young people um, it is very new like w- like I said we've just started again COVID right so we just started meeting people in person and so um, it seems positive but there's a lot of work there's a lot of work of gaining trust of getting that understanding um, we are committing to spending a lot of time there I know Shan and Selena are going to Oumamu and Gogamik regularly. Um, I was away on, you know, holidays. So I, it's funny how even just two weeks and you're like, I feel disconnected with my community partner, right? Um, so I'm, I'm planning on spending time there. Again, I've been invited to, there's a, a week-long ceremony happening this week and they've asked me to come and, and spend time with them. And so those are the ways that I get uh, the enthusiasm by, for me as a researcher, being invited to these activities. Um, and you can give your perspective. Um. Oh, um, yeah, well, I've had a chance to talk with um, some of the youth, and 
there is some skepticism, right? Which um, is to be expected, uh, especially when you introduce yourself as a researcher, it can be kind of intimidating. So being new, absolutely new to this process, um, a lot of it is just learning and observing. And I'm very lucky that I get to come from the perspective that most of the people um, involved in this project, most of the youth involved in this project are generally around my age range. So I do have a little bit of... um, that going for me but in terms of other people that I have told about the project like other indigenous people especially um other elders they obviously they see they see the value of it right away like I barely have to say anything I I say the title and they're like oh I know exactly what's going on there and I was like yeah cook them because it's like shared cultural values happening so you know anyone who is connected to culture enough recognizes the processes that we're trying or not we as researchers, sorry, that Corolla as an indigenous person is trying to put in place. Sorry, I talk we because also as an indigenous person. <laughs> so I kind of, I, I try to work to separate myself because there is a separation between me as an indigenous researchers researcher and me being like an indigenous person. So, uh, you know, the processes that Corolla is implementing our elders know right off the bat and they see the value in it um, because returning to systems that work for us will inherently just be better for us. And so, I mean, they're right on board with it. And um uh, they have really been encouraging me about how uh, good this this work is. And um, that's good for me because being a younger person, um, I often feel like, oh, I am not validated enough to be in this space. I haven't learned enough. I haven't taken enough time. Like Because when you spend time around elders and you listen to them and you listen to their perspective, you just you feel so humble. And um, so listening to them and watching their excitement makes me really happy to be part of a project like this. So while it wasn't exactly to our community partner, um, but to other indigenous people a little bit more broadly. <laughs> that's great like is that yeah. is that what you're looking for <laughs> yeah no i'm not absolutely. looking well we're not looking for anything no, I don't. <laughs> that's what, it's, that's like what what your participants often say did i get the answer right it's like no just tell us just <laughs> just yeah. answer just yeah i talk. just wanted to like sit with that like for a moment and just like take it all in um yeah, record, it's still really new, right? Like it's still, yeah. even though we've been working on it for a year and a bit, it is still new because we've just been able to interact with the young people, with the elders. Um, so, well, I think I might have said this our last our last uh, podcast that uh, we're you know kind of redoing here, um, <laughs> recasting. Re- recasting. We're recasting our own podcast. So, um, and I, I and I still don't know how to approach this. Uh, appropriately so please correct me um is how can we incorporate more of these systems and it's not we i don't think that's like i i say we um as society really um as as a colonial society how can we break down more of these barriers and and incorporate more of these types of programs i guess into everyday life so that we can really start to break down like and again it's i say we dismantling like, systems i yeah. shouldn't be having <laughs> this conversation we, huge removing small. myself from the conversation almost you know very small question how do we yeah. decolonize how do oh, we, we de- how, how do we decolonize that is such a such a great question what a, what a big I wanna, question well, no, i mean what how can we incorporate uh, 
I no, hate, no, I hate no, it. No, I don't know what. I don't know how to approach this question. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just teasing, Noah. Yeah. Absolutely, uh, that's the right question to be asking. Um, Cynthia, if you have anything you want to add before I go off on this, well, I'm going to let you go off. I mean, I think because you're going to have a lot of, of perspectives. Me as a settler on Indigenous lands, recognizing that it is a very difficult thing to dismantle systems, um, I will put a shout out to um, pay attention to who you elect into office. Ooh, that's a good one. <laughs> because if you have elected officials that don't even care about, like if it's not even, if decolonization is even on their like radar, then yeah, that's a problem. Uh, you know, not that I'm saying that any political system in this country is is going to be 100% towards decolonization because yeah. I just don't think it realistically is created that yeah, way. Yeah, right? But at, at least if there are elected officials that are thinking about it and moving towards that, then that's a first step. And then Cheyenne will just take it over for me. Oh, geez. All right. I'm not going to give you an easy answer. This is probably not something you can implement in your daily life um, because because you can't. Unfortunately, there's nothing that you can do in your daily actions that suddenly alleviate colonial trauma. Unfortunately, it doesn't work like that. It's been a couple hundred years. It doesn't get solved in a decade even. So that's the reality of the situation, right? We acknowledge that that was not an easy question because it's not an easy answer. But ultimately, it's land back. <laughs> Here I go. But it, but it is true because it comes down to indigenous sovereignty. If you allow people to have sovereignty over their nations, over their governments, over their sources of income, over their children, sovereignty over the CFS system, over adopting systems, over just indigenous sovereignty, like that's what land back is because the people are the land, if that makes sense, right? So it's not just about returning physical land in that sense but it can be because I seen some dude do it and I definitely applauded him and I was like good on you man 180 acres back to the indigenous stewards of that land it's pretty impressive I like to see it I saw it on like a news article probably about a month ago so I'd have to dig that up maybe I'll send it to you so you can we cite can it. put a link in the episode description check this out <laughs> yeah no that'd be so cool so yeah and un un unfortunately it's it's not as easy as we would hope it to be but it does come down to well first off we can we can vote for elected officials who care about indigenous issues but the truth of the matter is, is until all of our colonial systems have been dismantled, will we truly experience decolonization? And decolonization, you know, is difficult for some people to conceptualize because lately it's been a bit of a buzzword. But decolonization is just any system undoing any system that has created colonial harm, right? And it isn't performative, and it isn't necessarily a white savior. It, it'd be pretty hard to be a white savior and decolonize <laughs> successfully. They just don't go hand in hand. So, but you know, it it is possible. It is possible, and it's not as far off as we think 
that it is, um, especially the circles that I'm in right now, the idea around legitimate land back, legitimate land sovereignty or just indigenous sovereignty in general is within our grasp in the next decade. And it's kind of freaky to think about. I'm excited, but it does literally mean dismantling any system that does us harm. So, yeah, but it, I mean, it has happened like, and I can't remember off the top of my head, we talked about it last podcast, cause it had just been announced. Um, there was a, a, the police a community. No, but that's an interesting one too. Uh, no, there was a community. I think it, it was either Manitoba or Ontario that had finally, they, they made an agreement with the federal government for the indigenous community to take over the care of children. And so it, so so it can happen, right? It does happen. It does yeah. happen, and those conversations are happening. And we have, that's the other thing, there are amazing Indigenous people in elected office or as senators, like Patty Labacom Benson, that's been, who has been working on, um, on a bill to uh, allow Indigenous uh, communities to take over the care of, of young people um, or the Cindy Blackstocks of the world that are just, you know, trying to, kick down the system so it, it is happening it is but happening. that's why it's important to think about um the people that are in office because they do they can make a difference right like are again is are we going to completely decolonize and dismantle everything i mean i i just as a realist it, it it's not going to happen but can we just you know chip away a little bit at a time i i think it is happening in in communities right um, it's just, it's a lot of work and, and, and we need that awareness. Why podcasts like this are good is to bring that awareness of what can be done or, or, or just even the awareness of, oh, if this person is talking about, um, you know, indigenous rights, let me, what is their platform? What are they saying? And so, mm -hmm. um, you know, what and, can I do about it? And, and as an individual person, sorry, there is one action that is useful, especially, you know, as because we will see an increase of movements towards ideas of land back. And and um, I am no predictor and I know nothing, obviously. So I have no idea how this is going to play out. I mean, we do it 100 percent or we or, you know, we chip away at it. Like Cynthia said, I mean, it, it really depends on the people. But something that I've learned from um, BLM in recent years is that mutual aid will become more and more important. That as a person that comes with generational wealth or privilege or literally just disposable income, support Indigenous people around you who are struggling. Mutual aid is important. And especially when we don't have governments that fight for voices that matter or create funding systems that actually impact the problem that they say that they're addressing. I mean, a lot of the time they say they're addressing a problem and then we get kind of like some half-assed situation, right? right? But as an individual, mutual aid is an option and it's a really, really good one. I mean, put it in your monthly budget. Mutual aid, 20 bucks. Let's support each other. Exactly, exactly. Because as if it does happen, how Cynthia says, right? The chipping away, especially in Alberta, we're going to see a lot of angry Burtons. <laughs> a lot of them right? Especially with the oil stuff going on, stop line three. I mean, all of this stuff, right? They're already kind of mad at us. So mutual aid is going to come more and more important because when our government leaders do not care about us, they are not going to create funding for us. 
So we have to stand together united and we can't let people who are fighting the good fight fall behind. And if you can't fight the good fight on the front line, that means mutual aid. That's what that looks like to me. So, you know, an individual action that if you are capable is definitely attainable. Thank you so much for sharing that. Yeah, Yeah. and I just want to ask if it's okay if you, either of you, have recommendations um, for groups or for a GoFundMe or for an organization that's doing work um, that maybe we could weave those in and include those um, not only in our calls to action along with our land acknowledgements, um, but like we can link to them. We can offer people a way to feel like they can do something. Um, so if you guys well, we know can of link, any- you can link to Niganon because they can always well, use the help. But yeah. one, yeah. one thing I also, I, I want to, um, before we go, and, and again, this is something that I, is always on my mind, but Shan helped me to put it back in my brain a while ago, is when we talk about Indigenous people, especially in health, it's always deficit, right? We always talk about the trauma or we talk about the high diabetes rates and tuberculosis and all these kinds of things. There are, are millions of positive stories and great things happening with Indigenous groups and we need to focus on uh, the good work that Indigenous people are doing and the good families that are creating because we always talk about it in a negative way and um, that's something that we forget about, right? Like, and and we, we need to stop focusing on that deficit, that deficit approach when we talk about Indigenous peoples and, and understand that there's amazing work being done. Um, and focus on that um, because I think that that is also a thing that in our daily lives we need to start focusing on. It's an interesting thing when there's even been some analysis of journalism stories when they're written by Indigenous people or non-Indigenous people, the same story, focus, the Indigenous people focus on the positives of the event and the non-Indigenous always focuses on the negative and and we need to stop doing that as journalists. Yeah, and that's (laughs) that's something actually that we learned. Um, I did work uh, on an investigative journalism piece with the Institute for Investigative Journalism um, looking at water in Indigenous communities and we learned from we were paired with Indigenous reporters um, and we were basically taught like how to not fall into stereotypes how to focus on positives how to approach from a place of hope and not create like what I would call like pity porn for people to somehow read and feed that not only white savior complex but it just feeds into this perception of, again, superiority or yeah. white supremacy at yeah. the base of it. So, yeah, when you mention that, um, it is a problem in the media. And I think that that makes people think that that's all there is to focus yeah. on. So, yeah. And it definitely leaks into how people think about our unhoused indigenous population. Absolutely. Um, these people have lived experiences and and um, life stories to tell and... Some of it may include trauma, but they are not less of a person. They are not any more in the deficit than me or you walking down the street. They are a fully realized individual, and we all deal with our own issues. And if we continue to maintain discussions of deficit, then that's all they're ever going to be to people. And and then you um, start to witness that people separate themselves they want to build this wall and they other them right and like you said bringing that conversation back out of the deficit back into well everything that isn't a deficit 
you know, that's how we can accurately tell these people's stories. And that's what's important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for, for joining us. Thank you for um, giving us the emotional time and, and effort that it is. I know this isn't, uh, you know, this, this, I take great, um, I don't, I don't know what to say, how to say it, but I would like to just say I'll thank you. I'll teach you something. Yes, please. Nanaskamun. 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 Because what we did here is we created a sharing circle. That's essentially what happened. And that's kind of one I, why I felt like I was, oh, I'm going to start today with a smudge. But then I got locked out and I couldn't get my smudge bowl. <laughs> but it, it's true that we have created a discussion around that sort of thing. So Nanaskamun. Nanaskamun. Means I am grateful but in a sense of, of ceremony that you are offering, that you are grateful that that person offered a bit of themselves, that they brought down all of their walls. It's a very powerful word. And if you can't remember how to say that, you can just say, hi, hi, which my cookum taught me means I see you, which is very empowering, right? I see you, I see your opinion, and I see where you came from, and I see your perspective, and I'm grateful for it. Hi, hi, nanaskamun. Love that. Thank you so much. Hi, hi, hi Nanaskamun. Hi, hi, Nanaskamun. There you go, guys. Yeah. I, I love learning. Um, I'm always I'm always open to to listening and and sharing as much as I can from my perspective. And uh, that's what this podcast is about is is sharing <clears throat> sharing sharing research, sharing our, our points of view. Sharing stories. Sharing stories. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to keep the party going, don't forget to check out the links in the episode description. This has been another episode, actually the inaugural episode of Research Recasted, the knowledge mobilization podcast brought to you by the Office of Research Services and the Faculty of Fine Art and Communications here at McCune University. You can support this podcast by listening on your favorite podcasting platforms with new episodes every two weeks. And don't forget to follow and give us a like on Instagram at Research Recasted. Research Recasted is hosted and produced by me, Dylan Cave, and Brittany Eklund. Music, sound design, and editing are by Dylan Cave with research, copy editing, and scripting by Brittany Eklund. Our executive producers are Cynthia Pudu, Jason Malenko, and Ray Barry. Thank you again and hi hi. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>